Chef Chris, is there any truth at all to chocolate being an aphrodisiac? There is some truth to that. Welcome to Ariel Talk Time with renowned chocolatier, Chef Chris Harvey. Today's episode is all about the art and seduction of chocolate. I'm Victoria Lynn Weston, your host. I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an intuitive business consultant, and I'm the CEO of Studio Carlton. We're a group of visionaries, producers, and developers of Amazon Alexa skills. I love to think big and embrace innovative technology. It's all about the future, and the future is here with voice, hands-free, data-driven content. Visualize this. There's currently over 66 million homes in the U.S. alone with smart speakers. Check out some of our work on StudioCarlton.com. Chef Chris Harvey is an award-winning pastry chef and renowned chocolatier. He has been named one of America's top 10 pastry chefs. Chef Chris was previously the executive pastry chef at the Bazaar by Jose Andres at the SLS Hotel. Chef Chris has honed his skills about chocolate and worked in revered French kitchens in France as well as the U.S., the Ritz-Carlton, and the Wynn Las Vegas. I first learned about Chris Harvey one Saturday afternoon when I was watching videos on the Pastry Arts magazine online. And I was so intrigued and mesmerized by what he was creating and making that I decided to follow him and his work on Instagram. And it didn't take me long to realize that this was a man that was extremely dedicated and passionate about his work as far as pastries and chocolates. He's just the kind of person you'd want to invite to your house as a guest because you know that his life experiences, good or bad, are going to elevate you spiritually and intellectually. And I can't wait to introduce you to him. I can't wait till you hear our conversation. And I hope that he inspires you and motivates you. Chef Chris Harvey, it's a pleasure. First, I want to know all about your training. Tell us a little bit. You know, I was a pastry chef for many, many years. And I have two, two brothers that are chefs. My brother, Mark, and Tom. Mark lives in Australia. Tom lives in Florida. I met many years ago. I was living out, out here. And I flew to New York City for the inaugural Salon du Chocolat, the same one they have in Paris every fall. They brought to New York City. And it was about Thanksgiving time. And I saw a demonstration by Robert Lynx, who was the founder of Le Maison du Chocolat. I remember watching him and taking notes and very detailed mental notes of everything that was about his persona, his aura. And I remember he had a white chef coat on and it was open. You know, they're, they're always double breasted. Those coats were the white ones. And it was open. You could see he had a, neck, a necktie underneath it and a, like a men's business suit. His glasses kind of perched on the bridge of his nose. And I can tell you exactly what he made. He made a ganache of just cream, uh, honey, lemon zest, and 64% Velrona Manjari. I watched him whisk it, whisk it, whisk it. And he wasn't making a truffle. He wasn't making a, a bonbon. He was just making this ganache. And he put it on a paper plate to share it with me no fork, no spoon. And I didn't know what to do, but this is like God <laughs> handing you a plate of food. So I folded that thing up like a taco, ate it in front of him. Didn't care about the manners so much anymore. He was so uh, impactful for me that that's all I wanted to do was, was make chocolate. But I knew that there wasn't a lot of uh, jobs for chocolatiers in, in America. So I got back into pastry making and kind of joked that, you know, being in uh, pastry kitchens, just to be around chocolate. It's just the way guys take yoga classes so they can be around single women. That's kind of why I 
always did pastry was just to be around the chocolate. I always thought that was the most interesting thing. I always thought it was still kind of challenging to make a chocolate dessert because chocolate already tastes good. Uh, you don't have to get too fancy with it in order to sell it to your clients. For that, that was always more challenging to me because I always wanted to make those chocolate desserts much more interesting because it's such a dominant flavor. It's easy to pair with stuff, but you got to be careful how you do it. But as far as my training, I was lucky. I had a great pastry chef that mentored me in the early 90s named Sylvain Gaez. And Sylvain was the nephew of the White House pastry chef, Roland Mesnier. And he introduced me to a guy named Pascal Jean Vier, who was at the Cocoa Berry Institute in Pensacola, New Jersey. And at that time, I was living in Washington, D.C. before I lived out west. So it was about a three-hour ride from Washington, D.C. And then he later introduced me to a, a master in gelato named Giuseppe Scaranginella. And that guy changed my life, too. And then after that, I went on to France when I was either 29 or 30 years old. So I had a few years' experience and was mentored by an MOF in ice cream, which means Millier Ovier de France. Uh, named Emmanuel Rion. And the MOF award is handed out every two years. And they only do a handful of those. And it's actually handed to you by the president of France. And it becomes part of your title for the rest of your life. So it's really a huge deal to have an MOF. I studied at a, a pastry school called Belloway Conceal in Paris. And I trained with a pastry chef named Christophe Felder. At that time, he was the executive pastry chef of the Hotel Creon in Place de Concorde. And then came back stateside, really felt that my job was underserving me, quit that and got a better job and really moved myself. Um, and even then, when I thought I was working hard, I realized I had to work even harder to get really good at it. Surrounded myself with better cooks, better inspirations, pushed myself, tried new things, new ingredients, furthered my training with a, a master in sugar candy making and chocolate making named Pierre Mergelet, and then took some lessons on how to make dragées, you know, coated nuts and fruits in a, in a panner and how to polish them and, and be creative with that. Still to this day, learn every day, teach myself something new every day, push myself. And, and if I ever get stuck in, in a manner of my creativity, I always say, you know, I'm going to try something I never tried before. So sometimes that's an ingredient or a flavor combination or a new technique, knowing that it may look ugly to start, but I have the ability to refine and get better. Life begins with mom. So tell me, when you were growing up, was your mother a good cook? Yeah, I ask everybody where they get their inspiration to be a chef and almost to a person. It's either mom or grandma. It is never dad. It's the same in my case. My, my mom was a great person and I loved her dearly. And we had a great relationship. She's been gone since 2016. She lived to be 85. Mom was a great cook and mom didn't have maternal or paternal a figure in her early formation of her life. And she was raised by her aunt who had an interesting story too. But they were old school, old world Italians. And my mom had me late in life. She had me when she was 40 years old. My mom was a great cook, but we also didn't have any money and, and we lived a very far life. I, my brother, Mark, who is 10 years older than I am, went on to culinary school. And, I, and I'll never forget him coming back from culinary school about 1978 or 79. And he was showing me his toolkit. And he, he showed me all the tools, all the knives and scoops and whatever. He looked at me real seriously and he said, Chris, I'm always going to have something to eat now. And I never forgot that. How important food is to people's lives. It's not just to sustain them. It's things that they really enjoy. And all those memories kind of go back to those childhood things, depending on who was doing the cooking for you. In some cases, you know, it's a nanny cooked for you, or in some cases, it's mom or grandma cooked for you. But I think there is something to that, that my mom gave birth to three 
kids. And even though we didn't have a lot of money and the idea that she was cooking for us every night was super important. And now I go home to my family, which is just my girlfriend and our cat every night. And we have a meal together is, is such a change in my life from being a, a single bachelor. It's really the best part of my life right now is going home to her and, and sitting down in front of her and having a meal with her. And it's really changed my life, to be honest with you. I, I wish I'd had that earlier in my life. And knew how important that was, but I'm glad that I'm doing it with her. But yes, all those things all start at the beginning. And in our case, uh, it was my mom loved to bake and cook. Right before she passed away, we baked my favorite Christmas cookie, which I kept in the freezer until just recently. I ate the last one. So that lasted five years in my freezer. And what was your favorite childhood treat? You know, her peanut, because I love peanuts and peanut butter, but her peanut butter cookies, Anything she her quick breads, banana or or blueberry with a streusel on top. I loved I loved the this cookie that she called a Swedish, and it was a red currant jelly in a in a butter cookie with a thumbprint. You know, oh, I yeah. just loved the the idea that the j- jelly was cooked, so it got a little chewy towards the end of the baking process. And I just loved those cookies. That was perfection uh, to me. And I love real simple things, you know. So I to this day I still love simple things, and you know that's why I love visiting. Uh, places like Italy and, and Austria, because they really know how to do all the small sweets really well. You know, I'm not a big dessert eater, but I love coffee and tea. And to go with your coffee and tea, why not have a small cookie or something? And those countries seem to do it well. And she learned those from her aunt. Very nice. So during your childhood and teen years, while you're going through all this and going to school, did you ever daydream or have a vision or an intuitive sense what you wanted to do and be when you grew up? You know, it's a little bit of both because I've always been a dreamer. And I, I dreamt of many things. I dreamt of being a performer, or, uh, you know, a musical performer or whatever, or some kind of artist of some sort. I did think about becoming a chef because I had two chefs in my family. Tom, I was the youngest of the five, and Tom had gone to culinary school in 1989. He graduated in 88, and I didn't graduate until 1989. So he was already a year into culinary school to become a chef on his way to doing that. And so I thought about it too, because I was always working in restaurants, working in restaurants as a dishwasher in a Chinese restaurant or as a, or as a waiter or server or something like that. So I did think about it. I watched Julia Child as a kid. I watched Great Chefs of the West, Great Chefs of Chicago. It was a documentary series on Discovery Channel when I was a kid. And all those things were very, very inspiring to me. So I did think about it when I was a kid, but I was also a terrible student. I had the inability to do mathematics and barely could read. And nobody was helping me and nobody noticed. But now, you know, I, I, I work in metric. I convert metric to imperial in my head. What did they teach you in school anyway? The school back then was about teaching people shop class and teaching yeah, mathematics, yeah. hoping you get an engineer. You know, you had you required to take two years of algebra and this and that and the other thing. And, and I couldn't finish algebra one in three years. I just eventually threw the book away. But nobody was really training me for an occupation. And so I thought, you know, I'll get out. I'll just... Maybe I'll join the military. I remember taking the occupational test for that. There was really no direction in my family because both my parents were, were high school dropouts. And so there really was no, and my sister was the first one to go to college and she was 33. I don't really consider culinary school college. It was more vocational, but there's nothing wrong with the vocation either. You get your first job at 16 or, or did you wait to 18? I mean, I think I read one of these no, interviews. You started as a dishwasher and then eventually did wonton wrappers. I did. Yeah, that is true. I worked at a Chinese restaurant. Really nice people. I learned about their red envelope that they give you every uh, every uh, Chinese New Year, and they were super hardworking people. Yeah, I worked as a waiter and learned how to wrap wontons and egg rolls and things like that, and kind of 
did that as a teenager, that's a good place to start. You know, I tell people that, you know, if you want to start in this business, start as a dishwasher and to really see what you, if you like this business, because that is ground up. And to this day, I have so much respect for our dishwashers. I take extra good care of them because that job is hard. That job sucks. So how old were you when you decided to attend culinary school? Well, I didn't, I didn't get a chance to go to culinary school because I didn't have any money. Ah. And so, you know, that was an interesting thing is I, I, I first applied to go to the culinary school because I thought that's how you become a chef. You go to the CIA in New York, like Brother Tom and Brother Mark did. That was in upstate New York in Poughkeepsie or whatever it is, Hyde Park. So I had applied and got turned down because my math grades were so poor. See, that's where it come, came back to haunt me. So I signed up for a community college and I, the guy said, well, just get a C or better. And, and I wound up getting like a B plus in math. So I really knew what it meant to work hard and to work on one of my weaknesses. Got into culinary school, got my first bill, and I was like, whoa, I can't afford that, you know? And they said, well, just come on up. And so I live thousands of miles away. So I went CIA, and they said, well, we don't have any more money left for you. And I said, well, how am I going to pay for this? You know, I think I had $300 in my pocket, and it might have been less. I I stayed one night at CIA and turned around and, and left, crushed. I thought my dreams were over before they even began. But I realized there's other ways of doing it and finding a mentor was one of those things that led me. And then when I, he later introduced me to people like Pascal Jean Vier, who led me to, he introduced me to Giuseppe Scarginella, the gelato maestro that changed my life. And then I said, okay, screw it. I'm going off to France. You know, my, I was on my own anyway, and I had no responsibilities, no wife or girlfriend or anything. So I went off to France and spent the summer over there working my butt off and being real humbled and didn't know how to speak a lot of French. And I learned if I, I, it's fearful to speak their language, but if you want to eat or drink or have breakfast, you better try. That's all right. So I did my best and a lot of internet back in 1999, like there is now and all these translators and technology we have today. But I, but I read it very, very well. So I got along. And I also became, I was very observational. So being observational helped me too. And I still am very observational. That's why I do like traveling alone or rather I'm not afraid to travel alone because I am so observational. I don't have to rely on somebody else to help me get along in life. But I do like traveling with with uh, another person as well. So that's been fun as well. This has been one of my most curious questions. I am dying to know what exactly is a chocolatier? A chocolatier or chocolatier is, is just one who focuses mainly on making bonbons. So when I tell people I make chocolates, I make it very clear to them that I don't make chocolate. So I don't take the beans and, and roast them and window. And, yeah, I don't do any of that stuff. So I have no interest in that, in doing that. I take the chocolate that somebody else manufactures and turn it into incredible creations. And so we do molded bonbons, we do coated bonbons, we do bars, we do uh, dragées, which are coated nuts and fruits that are rounded off and coated with chocolate. And we do salted butter caramels and other sugar candies and things like that. But primarily our business is selling dark milk and white chocolates that are handmade, even though we have very sophisticated Italian machinery, they're still handmade every day, five days a week by my dedicated crew down here in downtown Los Angeles and sold in Beverly Hills and on the internet. So what is your favorite kind of chocolate? Swiss, French? The Italians also make chocolate, don't they? Yeah, they're, they're getting more and more into chocolate, which is really amazing. You know, as far, we'll go back to the machinery. The machinery was always made in Germany or France. And the Italians have taken over the chocolate manufacturing, the chocolate machinery manufacturing, 
over the last 10 years or so, it's just incredible to see what they've done as far as their engineering and their vision. Well, whereas the Germans make their equipment more mechanical, more like an old style Swiss watch, the Italians are much more automated and trusted in the, the look and the feel of it versus the mechanics of it. But they're still mechanically done very, very well. The Swiss chocolate is, the Swiss are more known for their milk chocolate than their dark chocolate because they have so much dairy there. That is a nation of dairy. So you always think about the cheeses and the yogurt from Switzerland, and you think about their milk chocolate. And I am a milk chocolate lover. If I had to pick a piece of milk cho chocolate between milk, white, and black chocolate, I would always pick out milk chocolate. But I do love dark chocolate as well. I love the nuance you get from different beans, how different a Venezuelan bean is from Madagascar versus Peru versus Mexico. So all that stuff is very, very interesting to me, how the terroir a lot like it does in winemaking, uh, how it affects the cacao bean that eventually becomes chocolate. So that's always very interesting to me. Well, let me ask you this. So now you buy your chocolate, obviously, from very upscale, prestigious types of companies, and they probably do have the types of chocolatiers that are very meticulous about the, the stock that they have, right? Mm -hmm. So they do. do you ever look at a company that you're buying chocolate from, do you ever look to see how stringent their process is? Like, would you buy something from a company that cuts costs by substituting, you know, vegetable oil or soy lecithin for cocoa butter? That those products, you know, ingredients don't matter. Well, ingredients do matter and sourcing matters too, because the world is changing, right? So the company that I buy my chocolates from just became B Corp certified. So that's the highest of the high standards, you know, because there's always been this criticism in the cacao industry that, it is was always kind of slave labor, child labor, and, and human trafficking. And that is 100% true. That's what it's always been. So the move towards ethical and ethically grown products is more and more important to people nowadays because of the transparency and the ability that we have to see really what's going on. You know, we never had that ability to see what's going on before. And there used to be this thing called the coffee, tea, and cocoa exchange up, up until about 15 or 16 years ago that sold all those items as commodities on an open market in Brooklyn, New York, and that's disbanded now. So now these companies are more and more competitive for the loyalty of the cacao plantations that are around the equator belt. You know, the chocolate companies don't own the plantations. They they just have partnerships with the plantations. The plantations just kind of grow. So it started several years ago with the companies, you know, offering better housing for the, for the people who pick the cacao uh, for cleaner water, clean water not cleaner water, clean water for the people that pick the cacao. And knowing that their human effort is so important to getting us something that we love so much. So we never forget that here, or at least I always say that to my crew, that, that there is somebody who doesn't know anything about what I'm doing with their, their hard work. They're really working hard and they have no idea who I am and they will never meet, unfortunately. But to show my appreciation towards what they do, I will utilize the, the chocolate that is made with their cacao to the best of my ability and do it with uh, an unmatched passion. Very nice. So let's talk about bonbons. So I did my research and, and I found out bonbons refer to any confectionery, kind of like what you alluded to earlier, but especially chocolate covered candies or truffles. And the word comes from the French word bon, which means good. Means good. So bonbons yes. were, were first reported in the French Royal Court back in the 1800s. And the first right, ones were made with sugar-coated almonds. Yes, dragées, you know, and and they, there's still a company called the Medici out of France that makes incredible sugar-coated almonds. 
and they hand select these flan almonds and they come in all these different colors and they are just incredible. Kind of like a lighter version of a Jordan almond, not as, not as, uh, uh, heavy as a coating. You know, it, it's been refined over the years uh, with the advent of colored cocoa butter, which we do more in the United States than they, and Russia than say they do in, in France, uh, Germany, Italy, uh, Switzerland, where they're more traditional about their bonbons, where they just kind of appreciate the color of chocolate more. And they do more coated bonbons over there than they do molded bonbons. And in the old days, when you would do molded bonbons, because you didn't have all the colors that we have now, the colors kind of specify the differences between bonbon to bonbon, right? It's like the color of a car. They make that bonbon unique. So you tell the story from the outside in. In the old days, we used to have very specific chocolate molds for the bonbons. And also in those days, we used alcohol as a means of preservation. So if you remember, you know, going through your grandma's chocolate box that you get at Christmas time, there'd be something with a lot of cherry alcohol, something with a lot of Grand Marnier, something with a lot of pear alcohol. And all those brandies were used to suppress the water activity in the bonbon so mold wouldn't form for something that was sitting at shelf level, right? So nowadays we use inverted sugar or caramelization to provide that safety level so that so no molds will grow inside these shelves. So we don't have to focus the specific chocolate molds that, that told the story of what the filling was. So example, it would look like a hazelnut or look like a cherry or look like a raspberry. Now we can kind of just color all the bonbons one color, one shape, or other all different colors and, and only one shape, and to kind of tell the story of the many, many different types of varieties that we have out there. So it's changed over time. People's taste buds have changed over time. You know, the, our clientele nowadays, the demographic is probably 24 to 38. They're on social media a lot. They're on Instagram a lot. So our bonbons have to look modern. You know, they have got to be ready for their close-up. You know, and I don't know if this brand would work in other parts of Los Angeles like it does in Beverly Hills. I don't think it would work in Venice. I think it's only Beverly Hills brand. Chanel does not pop up in Venice, California. Chanel is Beverly Hills or Beverly Grove or somewhere, even though there's lots of money in Venice, it's more still of a surf town. And I think that's what's important about our brand is that we are a Beverly Hills brand made here in Los Angeles. Whereas other Beverly Hills brands like Chanel and what have you are made in their respective countries were actually made here in Los Angeles. So that kind of answers the question and we have to kind of adapt to that. Absolutely. I, like a lot of my friends, I have never had a bonbon before. So I ordered a box from your company and Sons. And these bonbons, of course, are created by you. I picked out the shiny red one with a stripe. And I know that is one you actually had created yourself. And what I really liked about it was the slight snap to the thin outer shell. And then you bit into this really creamy chocolate. There was a slight crunch to it and just a subtle fruit flavoring with it as well. It was the most elegant and decadent 10 grams of chocolate I had ever eaten. And I plan to enjoy more. But anyway, let's talk about the creating of bonbons. So for a moment, uh, in my mind's eye, I'm visualizing your professional kitchen. It's early morning, maybe it's five o'clock, maybe it's six o'clock, and you're fresh and wide awake, neatly dressed in your light gray Chef Chris Harvey uniform, and you're standing at the shiny stainless steel counter. Your mind is a blank canvas, and you're about to invent two new bonbon flavors. Tell me, how do you get in the mood to start creating that? Do you turn on the music? Well, it always starts with music. You know, I, I wish I, I wish I love movies and music and, and art. And, you know, I have Andy Warhol 
tattoos on me. I have Andy's autograph on my on my chest right above my heart. And I have a quote from the movie. I shot Andy Warhol, 136 letters from shoulder to shoulder. And I have two Andy Warhol paintings on either arm. So I wish I I could say it was movies too, because I love movies and I love the narrative and how they, how they get created and how they get made and the stories behind them. But so it's always music. So we always put music on and, but the creation process for a creative person never stops. So I'm thinking about the things that I'm creating throughout the week. And it can be any time of day. And I write notes down on my phone what I'm, what we're going to do that day or for the week or what we're going to accomplish or what we're going to attempt. And I believe in just sometimes attempting something to see what comes out of it and where it may go. And so sometimes it starts off very, very much as an idea of what, what the color is going to look like or what the color technique may be before we create the flavor. And a lot of times we create the flavor with like a blank shell. And then we worry about what the outside is going to look like. And so I'm a big believer in that both have to work. It has to look beautiful and it has to taste exactly like I say it's going to taste or it's not worth doing. So a lot of chocolatiers, I've tasted their products. They say it's going to taste like raspberry or passion fruit. It tastes nothing like raspberry or passion fruit. But with that in mind, I always kind of try to be as authentic as possible. So when we do the creation process, as I said, the I have very good sense memory. You know, one of my favorite movie directors is Billy Freakin, uh, William Freakin, the guy who directed The Exorcist and I got to meet him a few years ago and see a movie with him, see one of his own movies with him. And he always talks about seeing things in your mind's eye. And he said, just, he just does things on one take. He's already seen it in his mind's eye. He doesn't do storyboards. He doesn't draw them up. I don't do that either. Other chefs draw their things up. I don't. I sometimes will mock them up with uh, solid pieces if I'm building them and say, okay, how does it fit into the box or how does it fit our collection? How do we, how does it look in the box? And it's a little bit like when you take an image and you're holding it in your hands and then you get it back from the framer much differently. It looks once it's in the frame, our chocolates, we sometimes only see on the table when we're making them, we don't see them in the boxes. So it's important that we see them all the way through. And I always tell my, my cooks that too, my young chefs that, that when you're creating a dessert on a plate or a small cake, or even a bonbon, it's important that you, you see it from the same aspect that the client eventually will see it. So take your ego out of it and eat it the way they're going to eat it. So if you, if I was at a, a restaurant or, or I was at say the Bazaar by Jose Andres and I'm creating dessert, I would sit down and eat it the same way the guest would with a fork and a knife or a spoon, not with my kitchen spoon standing over it because the perspective is different. I would eat it in the same light that they were eating it in because it's different than what mine may be in the kitchen. And that was also true about making a bonbon. So a bonbon is like 10 grams, right? It's not very big. So I have to pack a lot of flavor into something so small. So what we say, like, how are we going to do that? And what are good combinations? So I look at things as like a blank canvas. You know, I look at the ganaches as a blank canvas. The cream is there. The chocolate is there. The butter is there. That's to facilitate the flavor. But I say cream has no flavor, very little flavor. That's going to be used to infuse coffee or fresh ginger or one of those flavors I grew up very familiar with that I love pairing with chocolate or other fruits. So it really comes from all different angles, intellectualize them. We, we think deeply about them. I communicate them to my sous chef, Lauren, and we say, we're going to do this, this, and this. A lot of times the inspiration is the season. We have a California box coming out very soon that features California ingredients. And even though the chocolate and the butter come from other countries, 
we have a lot of great ingredients here, including stuff that grows in backyards of my employees. You know, I found Meyer lemons and calamansis that grow uh, in the backyard of uh, one of my employees who lives in Orange County. My other employee, Ruben, he brought these amazing lemons that grow in his front yard in Elysian Park here in Los Angeles. Wow. And I thought, oh, these are amazing. You know, so we zested them and juiced them. And then I found a pepper that only grows the uh, Basque region of Spain. Uh, some lady was growing it in uh, uh, Marin County, California. And uh, I bought that and utilized that, you know, and I found some amazing olive oil from Napa. And we utilized that in the ganache. And so, those, and I found some sea salt from Big Sur as opposed to getting the sea salt from Italy or the sea salt from, from Brittany, France. So, so the inspiration comes from, from all over. And sometimes the colors come from, I went to an auto museum on Saturday. I love seeing the paint jobs, you know, cause I'm a, cause I'm a car freak. I say, okay, I'm going to go in and replicate that too. And put that luster in that sparkle, that two-tone, that stripe. I love that type of, of culture, that intersection of those cultures into what I do here in the chocolate factory. That sounds exciting. I like the car idea though, getting your inspiration from that. So in the classics, you know, based on the color and the luster, as you just pointed out now. Oh I yeah. Know- Carol Shelby, Carol, I, I was just staring at a, uh, a 66 AC Cobra and the hood and, and the stripe that just went over the, the driver's side fender, two little stripes went over that. I thought, God, that looks amazing. You know, when you see the stripes on my bonbons, the raspberry almond, or the pop rock stripes. I do all those myself here. So they don't get done unless I'm doing them. Wow. Uh, that's how important it is to me. And a lot like how Rolls Royce has one guy doing the striping on the, on the coaches, one person does them. And if the car's in an accident, he has to go wherever that car is being repainted, whether it be Abu Dhabi or Beverly Hills, he has to fly there and, and restripe them by hand. And he uses a, a, a brush made from squirrel hair. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's incredible, right? So those details are important. A lot of people don't know that, but but I put if you're eating it, I put all the stripes on there myself. That is awesome. I will tell my friends that. So there. Anyway, I believe that intuition and creativity are kissing cousins, and you can't have one without the other. So during your creative process, how does your intuition speak to you? Well, you know, I, I always think about the deep kind of you know reptilian thoughts that our brain has uh, without even realizing it. And that's how I pair flavors together. Somebody said to me one time, how did you know cherry and bergamot would go so well together? I said, well, have you ever had a cup of Earl Grey tea and had a cherry Danish or a cherry pie? It tastes pretty good together. So why can't we rework those flavors as a bergamot ice cream with these sour cherries and this whatever whatever the other element was to kind of tie it all together. So I always kind of look deeply into that. And all those examples are kind of right in front of us as far as flavor pairings. This is why I don't think, you know, tropical flavors are great with like forest flavors. So I would never put passion fruit and strawberry together. That doesn't make any sense to me. You know, passion fruits grow, you know, in warmer climates, tropical climates, subtropical climates, and a strawberry likes a lower temperature, likes a little bit cooler weather, central coast of California type weather sandy weather, sandy earth. So it's just different that way. But the almonds also tend to like that same type of weather that the strawberry likes. So, and so do raspberries. So strawberry and almond go great together. Raspberry and almond go great together. And I save passion fruit for more uh, exotic flavors like coconut and things like that. And chocolate grows near cashews and it grows near 
coffee and it grows near vanilla beans. So that's why all those flavors kind of go hand in hand. So when I start pairing them together, it goes into just the things that nature already tells me. And I don't get too crazy with it. Now, some of the flavor, weird flavor combinations I do like. I think chocolate, you know, raspberry and yuzu go really well together. And that's not one you would ever think of, but they go very well together. But they also love sweeter chocolates like yuzu and milk chocolate. So I don't put, you know, dark chocolate and uh, passion fruit or yuzu together. Sour flavors go better with sweeter flavors. So if the star of the show is the yuzu ganache on the inside or the passion fruit ganache, the supporting actor is white or milk chocolate. So that's kind of how I think about those things. Wow, that's exciting. So how long does it take you to create new bonbon flavors? Then? Does it take a day and you and your team get together and, you know, you're jotting down ideas, sharing tastes, et cetera, et cetera. Does it take a day or does it take a week? I imagined you would have a sample test, right? Oh, you do. Yeah, you're always working on samples. As a matter of fact, sometimes, you know, my sous chef just handed me a Kinder Bueno bar. She goes, you got to try this, you know, because we're working on a new bar. And so sometimes it's, it's replicating something that's already been done that may be that maybe you could do better, you know? And so sometimes it takes some time. Uh, it takes a couple of days to get from start to finish until you get like a sample of something. And other times it happens very, very quickly. So for me, I don't jump uh, until I have all the details on it. And even when I think I have it right, I tend to still want to test out something new just to see, just to see what, what difference it would make at a certain temperature, the caramel's cooked or a little bit more salt or a little bit more lemon zest or what have you. Interesting. So is there a science to how you determine how much chocolate versus other ingredients to use? Like hypothetically, is it a half a cup of chocolate versus a half a cup of cream or is it a quarter cup or how does that stuff come together again as you're creating that? You can't, you're not going to a recipe because you're the one that's creating it. Well, sometimes, you, you know, like I said, we, we taste the ganache before we do the coloring and the coating. So when we taste the ganache, we have to take into consideration what it's going to be, what color of chocolate we're coating it with or what color of chocolate we're making the, the, the shell from. Sometimes the ganaches, sometimes they go, they're, they're too acidic when they taste them plainly. I said, I know that, but even though it's only going to have two grams of chocolate surrounding it to close it up, the idea that that two grams is so strong, it may be a perfect balance for that. So sometimes it is all about tasting in the whole creation and not tasting it separately. And I learned that lesson a long time ago. I watched the chef make a bunch of creme brulees and she said, uh, we're going to have a hazelnut creme brulee tonight. And and she went and she cooked it with the caramelized sugar on top. And then she went and tasted it. And she goes, oh, shit, it doesn't taste anything like hazelnut at this point because it got diluted by the dairy and then overwhelmed by the caramel. And that was a lesson in me to say, hey, you know, we got to practice a little bit more before we release it to the public. We just can't go on a whim like this because it's disappointing. You know, it can be disappointing to show up unprepared. So preparation is very important to me. Being mentally prepared, physically prepared prepared in our day is very, very important to me. Right. I understand your bonbons are filled with all these fresh ganaches and you have inventive flavor combinations in fruit caramels. Now I love caramel, but I've never had a fruit flavored caramel. So describe to me how mango caramel tastes. Well, it's mostly passion fruit and mango because they, they, they need to go together. Passion fruit being very acidic and mangoes being very sweet. So they all have to be balanced towards the end. And then, then you have to make sure the lactic acid and the butter works with uh, the fruit flavors as well. But yeah, that was a real challenge of mine that was that I really spent almost, I think, six or seven months working on those fruit caramels. I still kind of tinker with them here and there because I always, you know, William Freakin, going back to that director, he told a story about a famous artist 
that was already in the Louvre. And one day he, this artist went up, got a stool and he started touching up one of his paintings. And he got tackled by Louvre security. And they said, what are you doing? And they said, I'm the artist. I'm Pierre Bonnet. I'm the one who created that painting. And they said, well, why are you touching it up? And he said, he said, because he said, because I don't really feel that it's complete. It's not done. And it, it, but the guy said, but it's already in the Louvre, sir. You've arrived. And and William Friedkin took from that experience that if he had enough time left in his life and enough money, he would remake everything he ever did. He just thinks they're always changing and they're always in room for improvement and not to be a victim of your success. No matter how good someone said it is, you could always do a better job at it. And if I have a different idea for how I want it to be, be it a texture, a color, the fragrance, whatever, I'm willing to, to risk it, to change it. And I've had very successful items that made us hundreds of thousands of dollars a year off one item. And I remember someone saying, why would you do that? It's so perfect as is. I said, I think I can make it better. Maybe it's my arrogance. Maybe it's my my desire never to give up. And maybe it's my experience listening to William Freak and tell his stories, how he loves going back and kind of touching up the audio, touching up the look, and then re-releasing it. You know, I, I changed that one item. And as good as it was before, it became that much better. So I don't have an issue with, with uh, stopping myself and saying, okay, you've reached this level of success. That's enough. Look back on it and enjoy it. I still feel like it's okay to tinker with these things. So I always kind of look at the standard bearer of who I think is the best. And my brother, Mark, gave me advice one time many years ago. He said, go find out who you feel is the best at what they do and copy everything they do. <laughs> doesn't mean they can't be original copies, right? But learn from that person. And if you think they made a mistake, improve on what they've taught you. In other cases, if you have the ability and the foresight to make it more visible towards others, whereas that person missed that opportunity, go ahead and do that. That's okay, too. Seeking knowledge is important. Sharing knowledge is important. Exercising the knowledge that you've been given is more important than any of that. Because without exercising it, there's no point of of owning that knowledge. Mm -hmm. So executing on a daily basis is important. Now, connoisseurs of caviar use a mother of pearl spoons to eat caviar is not to taint the flavor of caviar. So when you taste test your chocolates, do you use a a utensil like a, like a metal spoon, a spatula, or do you just simply dip your finger in and taste? Well, never the finger always on a a plastic spoon to taste it, you know, (laughs) because we're trying to be sanitary, but it's important that your palate be ready for it. Well, I thought maybe you put it a lot of dish or something to that effect and then taste it, but. No, no, but it's important. We know we do prepare ourselves, you know, because you can't really eat too much of it before it all starts tasting the same, you know. That's how I always feel bad for the competitors in these chocolate events. You know, the the poor judge has to taste like 30, 40 small cakes or bonbons or ice creams. And your taste buds, after a while, just start getting, look, okay, that's enough. Emotionally, you can't eat it anymore. So, you know, you have to get your taste buds ready for it and make sure that it's going to taste like you expect it to translate through your through your taste buds. So yeah, you know, you always kind of make sure you didn't eat uh, anything spicy or or have you know crumbs in your mouth from your lunch or salad vinaigrette or something like that from your from your lunchtime or whatever. Make sure your palate's ready to accept those foods. But yeah, because you want to taste it and make sure that it tastes exactly like you advertised it. That's good. Let's talk about the business of chocolate for a second. 
all that creativity and magic that abounds you in your world of chocolate. And then knock, knock, the grim reaper of business profits is at the door. So the business of chocolate is just that. It's business, but it's big business. The chocolate world is a $103 billion a year industry with consumers spending over $9 billion a year indulging on premium chocolate, but doesn't account for all the, the cheaper, less great you know, chocolate. So let's visualize this. You just spent an all-nighter creating those two unique, never-before types of bonbons. At 8 a.m., you have to make a presentation with the head honchos from a luxury hotel chain. You confidently enter the glass and seal conference room, glance around the room, a small group of men and women all looking stoic, and they're all about the bottom line, profits. Your assistant starts passing around your sample of bonbons as you talk. So tell us, how do you convince the honchos that your new bonbon creations are going to be a big seller? Well, what I was always asked, because this is working, in, that is life working in a hotel. They always say, what is your contribution to our bottom line? And my contribution to the bottom line is making something so unique and delicious that nobody can get it anywhere else. And that is my contribution to the profitability of any company. So I am always maintaining the, the budget and, the, and I can work with premium ingredients that still make money off it because I know how to do that. But I get more out of it because of my reputation. So people say, well, how do you get the price for what you get? But that is the, uh, that's how everything works in life. That's how Mercedes-Benz works. That's how BMW works. You build your reputation and people will pay anything for it. So I would tell anybody that build your brand yourself. Don't cheapen it by doing something that is that would weaken your your reputation and be patient with yourself. That's what I would say to those head honchos. I'd say, I got all this experience. People buy anything I tell them to buy and they want to eat it because I've made it and I am that golden ticket to success. Awesome. A chocolatier who has the passion and confidence to make something absolutely perfect. All right, but let's go and back. Not cockiness. Not cockiness. <laughs> well, let's go back to the, the our visual here for a second. Let's say the main guy's not buying it. You know, he wants you to go back to the old bonbons of the previous years, but they actually cost more to produce today. So what do you tell them? Well, we have to cut the labor out, right? So we have to go to more automation. And we're at a crossroads here too where we either throw more labor at what we make or we go to more automation. Uh, so that's how I always tell people is that when you buy your equipment, buy it, planning on to being successful with it, grow with it, uh, make sure it makes money for you or you'll come to a situation where you're quickly undercapitalized. So that's where, where I see a lot of companies, they, they spend a lot of time chasing nickels because they don't have the ability to mass produce to really go after big dollars. I always tell people, make sure that your investment is is right and that you can make money with it. Great. Let's talk about the science of baking because we know that baking is all about a science. Now you recently posted a visually stunning image on your Instagram account, which I invite people to go follow, which is Chris Harvey, K-R-I-S-S and Harvey, H-A-R-V, the number three Y. So you have this beautiful image on your Instagram account and you wrote how you had revised your own chocolate salted caramel recipe by raising the temperature just two degrees. I found it fascinating mm -hmm. and I immediately wanted to know why. So tell us, how did you determine that your recipe needed tweaking in the first place and why specifically changing it two degrees? Well, I thought it was a little bit too soft and it goes back to my experience as an ice cream maker, which was, you know, when you go to Italy, they, their old saying is if you have more than 12 flavors, you don't have one good flavor, right? But the whole idea of the chemistry of the ice cream is that 
they all have to be the same texture, but it's all coming out of one freezer. So how do you accomplish that? And so we have other caramels that have a little bit firmer textures than the chocolate caramel. And I knew that raising the temperature would change the texture. If I lowered the temperature, it would make the caramel too soft. I knew that I, I should attempt to do it one of these days. And, and maybe it would be terrible, but maybe it'd be incredible. Uh, you know, maybe sometimes coming up on something is, is an accident too. Just changing the temperature of something, uh, how it's cooked can result in a great product because the temperature change follows through all the way. So just changing the caramel from one degree or two degree changes the texture when it's finally cool, wrapped and ready for the consumer. So I wanted to just kind of give it a try and see what I stumbled upon. And the results were incredible. That's what I go back to saying that I'm never done dialing in the things I've created, no matter how good they are, no matter how good everybody else thinks they are. If it can be made better, then I'm willing to, to do that and take that challenge. Nothing is sacred. Chef Chris, I'm always curious, though, is there any truth to chocolate being an aphrodisiac? There is some truth to that, more for the female of the species than the male. Uh, and the reason being is that uh, when females orgasm, they tend to release a pheromone that is similar to the rush that they get when they eat chocolate and cacao products. So there is some reason to believe that. This is why women have always tended to like, uh, through evolutionary times, a chocolate more than men. But that is changing because men are just as interested in chocolate as it's gotten bitter and more and, and darker as the years have gone by as women have. So there is a little bit of truth to that. Well, that's good to know. Thanks for sharing that. Let's talk about chocolate and the movie. So chocolate's played a starring role in so many films. And quite frankly, I'm surprised that chocolate hasn't won a Golden Globe or an Oscar by now. Lucy and Ethel treated us to some slapstick humor when working the conveyor belt at a chocolate factory and an iconic episode of I Love Luffy. And we couldn't forget Forrest Gump's iconic line, life is like a box of chocolates. And in the film, Chocolat, all it takes is one taste. In dozens of romance films featuring chocolate, film characters have teased and seduced each other with chocolate, tried to resist the temptation of chocolate, and seduced audiences with chocolate. And by the way, I, I, I make all my employees watch that episode of I Love Lucy um, <laughs> because the conveyor of chocolate will never change. Been here for a very long time. It'll be here long after we're all gone and our lives are expired. People will be making chocolate the exact same way. So yes, I, I do love the romance of chocolate. I love Valentine's Day. I love the giftability of chocolates. I love what it means to people all around the world. It, it is something that crosses all cultures. No matter what they eat, no matter how, what they pray to, they all love chocolate. And they all, it may not be part of their history. Like they don't have these classic desserts like in Thailand or Vietnam or Saudi Arabia. So they all kind of reach across their culture to eat chocolate. So I love that aspect of chocolate. I love that we all love chocolate. I love that we fall in love with chocolate. I love that we give it as a romantic gift. I love that people enjoy it at the end of their meal with their loved one. I love that it brings back so many memories of their loved ones, of sharing that moment with their partner. There's just nothing better than chocolate. So when did you first fall in love with chocolate? Oh, gosh, when I was a little kid, you know, getting the Easter bunny, giving, you know, we grew up Catholic and we had to give up sweets for 40 days. And that seems like impossible now to give up something for 40 days, but we had to do it. And there was nothing was better than getting that milk chocolate solid bunny when you were a kid and enjoying the ears off it or the feet off it or the tail off it. Yeah, it was just a great experience being around it. 
I just never forget those memories. And I love getting the small eggs and foil and the Hershey kisses and all that stuff. And I know that's not great quality chocolate, but it's still enjoyable. And I still find great enjoyment eating a Reese's peanut butter cup or peanut M&Ms. Those things are incredible to this day. Well, here's something I'm really interested in. As a testament to your devotion to chocolate, you have the chemical formula for theobromamine tattooed on your right arm. So first That's tell true. us, first tell us what is theobromamine? Theobroma cacao is the biological name of the cacao plant that gives us chocolate. There's two elements to uh, cacao. There's the fruit of the cacao, which is inside the caboose, and that surrounds the, the cocoa beans or the fava de cacao which is crushed and that's where the cocoa butter comes from that's where the chocolate liquor comes from and that eventually becomes uh, chocolate so you can eat both parts of that cacao one of my cooks many years ago came up to me and she said we should get that tattooed on our bodies and i said let's do it i'm easy when it comes to somebody saying let's get it go get a tattoo i said okay that's easy for me to do because i have a lot of them and so i even have uh, joke tattoos you know because i think it's funny sometimes you know the piece of candy, you know, kind of a classic candy wrap on my arm and have the logo for Le Mesa du Chocolat tattooed on my arm. And I have the chemical uh, compound of Theobroma cacao, which looks a lot like coffee, by the way. Yeah. Uh, people ask if that's coffee. So people ask about that a lot. But yeah, they, they say, well, that's what I do for a living. I make chocolates. So why not? Okay. So, but why tattoo the formula on your arm and not your inner thigh? Well, because very few people see my inner thigh. So I figured <laughs> I'd show everybody. But it's kind, I, of, I, but it's kind of a secret though, isn't it? The formula? Well, I, you know, I think it's not a secret as much, but it is personal to me. I do have tattoos that people can't see on my body, you know, unless they have my shirt off or something. I have them on my shoulder. I have them on my on my rib cage and things like that. And sometimes I have them on the back of my head, I forget, that I have behind my ear, too. Sometimes they disappear and you catch them in the mirror or you catch them in the shower and you forget you have them there. It was personal, but it also tells a story of who I am. Very good. So now you're currently like the head chocolatier at a wonderful company in Beverly Hills. It's called N-Sons Chocolatier in Beverly Hills, California. So how did you segue from the, the luxury hotel career to N-Sons? I was becoming known as a, a chocolate machine, a machine that tempered and, and coated chocolates at the hotel in Beverly Hills, the, the SLS hotel. And Having that gave me a license to really kind of work on my own skill set. I became kind of known on the internet as a chocolate guru. And some visual magazine called Insider called me the chocolate king of Beverly Hills. And, and that led uh, these two gentlemen, Phil and Mark Kovitz, to me. And they sent me an email one day and they said, we want to talk to you off property about something. And so I met them on a, on a work break across the street from where I worked. And they said, well, how much? And I gave them a number and uh, how we'd go about it. And we just got right to work on it and got to open up this and gave up pastry just to do this, which has been great. You know, it's been a great experience uh, just kind of focusing on this. I've improved uh, my skills and, you know, kind of working on something versus when you're a pastry chef, you have to work on, you know, making ice creams and croissants and muffins and plate desserts, small cakes. You have to have a wide skill set, which is interesting, but when you work just on one discipline, you're kind of just working on this and you kind of become like an expert at it, you know, just as like, if you wanted your transmission to be done, you don't go to a guy who does body work. The guy who does body work just does body work. So a transmission guy does something completely different. So it kind of was all kind of 
just kind of specializing in that. So I'm glad to be doing just this. And I had more goals for myself as a chocolatier too. So. A couple more questions. The one's about destiny. I believe in destiny. I think we everybody has one. I believe we're all born with a destiny similar to, you know, a book's table of contents. And the good news is we have free will within our unique table of contents to choose a specific career path. For instance, your destiny may have been part of to become a chef. However, you had the free will and you have chosen to become a pastry chef and chocolatier. So let me ask you, do you feel like you're living out your destiny and life purpose? And my last question is, where do you see yourself 10 years? As far as my destiny, I don't know, because I, I feel like I've exceeded any kind of dream I ever had for myself. I think anybody would have think I would be where I am today. But social media has changed that. I'm grateful for that. But I didn't really think this would be my destiny. I thought I'd just be a hotel chef or, or run a patisserie or something like that. I didn't think I would be doing this or have the the platform I have worldwide that I do now. So I'm grateful for that. And in 10 years from now, I, I hope that I'm still doing this business. I don't want to work day to day making the chocolates like I do. I want to see myself more as a overseer of these products, still creating them, but also helping the younger generation reach their goals, teach them how to make money. I think that's very important. People don't realize that as a working artist, the ability to make money is a skill all into its own and how to monetize yourself. So that is very important to me too. So sharing that technique with somebody and know that you have the secrets and you have the skills that everybody else wants. So that has to be important to you. So I work a lot in the cannabis industry. They have a, they always have big investments, but they don't know how to make anything. So knowing that I have those skills, they have to pay for my 30 some odd years of experience. So you can't do it cheaply, right? That's right. So a chocolatier is actually pronounced a chocolatier. So I learned something new. Well, I know how to properly yeah, pronounce okay. it now. You can Thank say you. it. But you can, you know, but it'd be like if I went into a place and said, let me have a uh, croissant au chocolat. It seems kind of uh, arrogant of me to do so to say it in French when you could just say, let me have a chocolate croissant. So you could say chocolatier too. It's fine. That's just the, the Anglo pronunciation of it. A chocolate TA sounds much more magical, though. Yeah, but I but people look at me when I say chocolate TA, and <laughs> they go, well, who is this jerk? You know, so I, <laughs> I, say, I say I'm a chocolate TA, I make chocolates. I explain it like that. Oh, very nice. Anyway, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, Chef Chris Harvey. Thanks. And I love everything. I learned a lot, and I have a lot more questions, and hopefully next time we can have a, another conversation and talk about the pastry side of, of your life as well and other projects that you're getting into. Well, this has been great. Thank you very much for inviting me, and uh, have a great day and stay safe. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ariel Talk Time with award-winning pastry chef and renowned chocolatier, Chef Chris Harvey. He shared part of his journey and his passion and knowledge of chocolate. You can follow Chef Chris on Instagram, Chris, K-R-I-S-S, Harvey, H-A-R-V, the number three, Y. Chef Chris is known for his behind-the-scenes chocolate crafting videos that he features on Instagram. If you're looking to buy pastry tools, learn tips, he has links there as well. And also, and perhaps most importantly, you must try Chef Chris Harvey's chocolates and bonbons from and-sons.com. If you're not already subscribed to our podcast, now is the time to do so. The Aerial Talk Time podcast is a collection of interviews and is produced by the Aerial Talk Time team with audio mix by Andrew Olson. Copyright Weston Media Group, LLC.